last week we shared about the difference between a life of success and a life of significance, right? And we said that success isn't bad. In fact, success is good. You know, you work hard. Oftentimes you're successful as a result. And so there's nothing wrong with success. I, I want you to be successful. Not, but success is fundamentally about us, right? Success is about us achieving, accomplishing. And that's good. That's not bad. But we're called as Christians to live lives of significance, right? And significance is about others. We're called to serve we're called to build his kingdom above our own. And so that's, that's, what it, um, that's what it should look like as Christians. And if you missed last week's service, uh, or oftentimes people will say, you know, how do I share that? I have a friend who, you know, who I want to share that with. You know, it's on Facebook, it's on YouTube, and we have a, a podcast as well. So you can go back, listen to last week, or you can, um, you know, share that with somebody else. But a life of significant is about others. As Christians, we're called to live as Christ did. And he said he came not to be served, but to serve, right, for others. So the title of the series is What, what is Your Excuse? This is the second part. And last, like last week, I want to be clear that I qualify that title, that this isn't Pastor Brian up here saying, what's your excuse to each of you? But I believe this is the Lord through his word asking each of us, what is our excuse what, what are the excuses? What are the reasons we don't plug in? What are the reasons we don't see in our own lives? What are the reasons I don't see in my life that I'm not becoming more and more like Jesus? What are we doing with the time and the talents and the treasures God's given us? Not, not tomorrow, not yes, not what you didn't do, but what are you doing right here, right now with the abilities, with the time, with the resources that God has given you? Because he's not going to ask you what you did in some hypothetical situation. I was having a conversation the other day, and they said, you know, we were talking about Emma and Renzo, and, and just being encouraged. I said, you know, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I would do that. And I said, you know, God doesn't call us to live in the hypothetical. It's his grace at work in us. And we've got to trust that if we're surrendered to him, that in any context, he's going to equip us. He's going to give us the boldness. Because it's never about what we can do. If it was about what we could do, we'd all be in trouble. But it's about what we can do through him and surrender to him. Amen? So God's not going to ask us what we did with somebody else's resources or somebody else's gifts. He's going to ask us what we did with what he gave us. And we have more and more opportunities here to connect and to serve and so we need to be committed to walk closely with other believers. You know, we had a men's, men's breakfast yesterday, and, uh, and Bob Glover shared it was a tremendous teaching. You know, but one of the things he talked about, and you're going to continue to hear about, is this idea of community groups. Because the notion of living as a Christian apart from a community of, of followers, a small community, is so foreign that it's nowhere in the New Testament. All the New Testament was written to small churches, groups of believers who most often met in homes, but who, who committed to just do life together. And so Sunday is for corporate worship. It's to hear the word. It's to be equipped. But we are called to walk in relationship with other believers. God exists in relationship, right? The Trinity is a relationship. And so he values relationship, and he's called us to plug into that. And, you know, I said in the first service, I, I was a police officer for a couple years. I worked as an addiction counselor. I've been in, you know, my own, I struggled with my own addiction, and I've worked with addicts for 15, 20 years, and I've been a pastor for 14 years. And here's what I can say unequivocally based on my observations. The people who do well in life 
when they face, whether it's addiction or financial struggle or relationship struggle or anxiety, anything they deal with, the people who do best, who are most resilient, are those who are walking with a group of other people. And the people who struggle the most are those who either self-isolate or who don't have a community of people around them. And so it's such an important thing. It has a practical application in our lives. And I know it, it means moving out of our comfort zone. Right? For some of us, it's, you know, it's, it, it means you know, making ourselves vulnerable, putting ourselves in situations that may be a little less comfortable. You know, I shared that I remember when my sister, her husband's in the military and they lived all over, and I remember going to visit her in Ohio. And we pulled in, you know, we went in the house and we're, you know, just kind of just got there for maybe a half hour and, and the neighbor came over and they said, oh, we saw our car, we didn't recognize, we just wanted to say hello and they introduced themselves and they left and I'm like, what is, are those people crazy? What is wrong with them? And she's like, no, everybody's so nice. I'm like, we grew up for 40 years, living in the same neighborhood. I don't know the guy who lives on the left or the guy who lives on my right. I didn't know anybody. We're New Englanders, right? We're just compartmentalized. We're, we're independent. It's part of our nature. But we're called to be dependent on Christ, and we need each other. And we're going to get a little more into that. But ju- just imagine this. Imagine right now there are people in this church that are going through situations, that are going through struggles, that either you've gone through, maybe you have victory in, or maybe you're in the midst of and if you don't show up, they don't get to hear the testimony of what God's doing in life. Your testimony is not for you, it's for everybody else, right? We said that last week. So we gotta show up. We gotta show up for each other, and we gotta show up because it's what God has called us to do. And so most of the time, you know, the main thing we need to do is just show up. Not only on a practical level do we need help in this places to serve, and it's easier if we, but, but even on a more personal level, there are people who your testimony, your experience directly will speak to. And so I would encourage you to be part of that. We are called to be Christ representatives on earth. The world is watching. John 3.30. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. We like to complicate things, but here's the question, folks. Here's the, here's the, you know, the, the litmus test. Am I becoming more like Jesus or not? And if I'm not, why? And most of the time, because it's because I'm not showing up. I'm not plugging in to the life-giving things that God has for us. See, I don't have a checklist and say, you weren't here, you weren't here. You, no. But I know that everything in the world... Everything in your life wants to take you away from the things that God has for you that are life-giving, from the word, from prayer, from gathering together corporately, from all those things that will strengthen you. And the enemy doesn't care if what keeps you away from church is morally neutral, right? He doesn't care if it's tennis that does it. If anybody plays tennis, you know, they're like, well, he passed called me out with my tennis player. No. It doesn't matter if it's something that's morally neutral or if it's sin that does it. All the enemy cares about is that you're disconnected from the things that are going to make you healthy spiritually. And so, Father, I pray now that as we dig into your word, that you do what only you can do. That you convict us, that you encourage us, that you challenge us, that you motivate us, that you show us the areas where we need change. Meet us in this place, God. Soften our hearts. Even now, God, let us be prepared to receive because we know that you discipline, that you rebuke, that you correct, that you adjust the lives of those you love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 
So again, I'm challenging you because I don't want you to miss out. I have yet to hear somebody toward the end of their life or in their, in their later years say, you know, I really regret that I served Jesus with all my heart. You know, I really regret all that time I spent in the Bible. You know, I really regret that I just prayed all the time. I mean, what a waste. But I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I regret that I always took that overtime. And overtime, listen, it's not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But that I took that overtime instead of going to my kid's game or, or I... You know, my priorities were such, you know, I built a business, I made a lot of money, but I lost my marriage. You know, I, 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 I did all these things, I, you know, I, I had all these accomplishments, but my kids don't really talk to me. I've met a lot of people that have come to the end of their lives and say, I wish, I wish I could have done things differently. I wish I didn't focus so much on the things that didn't matter. And I wish instead I lived according to the giftings God gave me. See, we said last week that for each of us, God wants us to go deeper. And you never, you never get to the place where that's not true. It doesn't matter if you're, in, if you're a seminary, grad, seminary graduate, if you're in full-time ministry, if you've been a Christian for 60 years, you don't one day wake up and go, I did it, figured it out. This Christian thing, I got it, I'm good. We can always go deeper. And God's always gonna show us stuff you know, and, and we, we, we moved, you know, it was almost convenient when my problem was like substance abuse because then I could, could blame all that. Like all bad behavior was like, yeah, you know, I got a substance abuse problem. Like you could blame, and then that goes away and you're just like, I'm just angry. <laughs> I just lie a lot. I'm just completely self-centered. And there's always something that God wants to show us. And at some point we can remove ourselves from that process so we can say, Lord, continue to deal with me. Continue to work these things out of me. We read from the third chapter of Revelation last week where Jesus himself says to us, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. In other words, be serious about it. Just change. Just commit to be different. Just turn it around. Just pray for the Lord's help and ask your brother or sister to walk with you because we can't do it alone. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. We need each other. Be earnest and repent. Genesis 4 says, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils and offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor with Abel's offering, and, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was very downcast. Abel gave God his best. And it wasn't about the amount, it was about the posture, it was about the point of it. Abel said, I'm gonna give God the first, I'm gonna give God the best. And Cain said, I'm gonna give God what's left over. I'm just gonna give God, here, here. It's actually, look, it's more than Abel, look, here, here. And then God didn't look with approval on Cain's offering. So what did Cain do? Well. As much as I hate to admit it, he, he did with I, what I do a lot of times when the Lord, or the Lord through somebody, sometimes my wife, corrects me, is I throw a pity party. I get mad. I make excuses. Well, you know, Abel's God's favorite. I'm never going to be as good as Abel. Poor me. You know, you mope. 
You ever see kids ask for something, or something goes bad, and they mope, oh, it's the worst day of my life. I'm so bored. Everything's so dramatic. It's like, you know, it's just, oh, it's, it's, I said, be grateful. You know, be grateful. Yeah, no, it's like, you know, mopey. Not mature. Not acting like, like we ought to act. And so the scripture continues, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? I imagine him going, what is wrong with you? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do the right thing, this is all going to go away. There's no reason to have a pity party. There's no reason to compare yourself to somebody else. There's no reason to sit and you know, go into that place we go, the shame and guilt and the cycle of reasons that we're inactive. All we got to do is commit ourselves to the Lord and say, you know what? You're right. I confess. Thank you for showing me this. Help me change. But if you do not do what is right, Scripture says, sin is crouching at a door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Every one of us are in this situation. You know, people talk about a day at a time, a choice at a time. My father, way before he became a Christian, said you figure out what you want out of life and every decision, every choice you make is that moving you closer or further away. As a Christian, that's even more profound because we can say every choice you make, everything you do is that moving you closer or further away from God himself. Because sin is there, it wants to kill you. Here's a secret, ready? The enemy wants to destroy you, wants to destroy your family, wants to kill you, wants your life to be a mess. That's what Jesus said. The enemy comes to kill, kill and steal and destroy. And Jesus said, I come that you may have life and have it to the full, or have it abundantly. There's a God who wants us to flourish in the way he determines we flourish. So this is serious stuff, this exchange between God and Cain, because some people, when faced with the reality of what God expects of them and the comparison with how they're living, they get mad. Like we read the word of God and we look at our lives and instead of receiving it, we get mad. Our hearts get hardened and we run away from God. Well, I'll never be like that person, or I'm never going to be perfect, or, you know, I did this, this, and this, and, but, you know, it's never enough, and blah, blah, blah. I'll never forget one time somebody said to me, you know, I tried the Christian thing, it just didn't work for me. I'm like, wow, okay, let's unpack that. How are things now? Oh, they're a mess. Oh, so Yahweh's not working for you either, right? Maybe your idea of the Christian thing isn't really the Jesus thing, maybe it's the religious thing. Maybe it's the legalistic thing, but I guarantee you it's not the Spirit of God thing. See, look what happens when we continue down the path of anger instead of repentance. Verse 8, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Because it's easier to marginalize, to label, to destroy something else than to admit that we need to change and try to change ourselves. If I can look at my brother and I can somehow discredit who he is to the point where I'm destroying him, maybe I'm not physically killing him, but I've destroyed him. I've destroyed his character. If I can do that, it's easier for me to feel better about myself that way than to change. Than to allow the Holy Spirit to convict me and to cause change in my life. It's easier to destroy somebody else. God loves us. And he's showing us truths that give life, that help us not hurt. 
And we have to repent because too often we simply haven't trusted him. And so if Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. That means no matter where you are, what Jesus is inviting you into is intimacy with him. Deeper intimacy with him, that's always what it's about. It's never about anything else. It's about a relationship with the God of the universe who created you, who loves you, and in whom there is full satisfaction, and apart from him there is no satisfaction. And some of us know that all too well. And we still go out and pursue all those things. And so I told you God was dealing with me in my own life, and so here I have a confession to make, right? You guys are cheaper than a therapist, so I'm just going to confess to you. Because I'm always going to tell you the truth, right? So I'm in this season, and, and you know, there's, there's trying elements of the season, but I'm in my wheelhouse. I can preach, and I'm organizational, and I'm administrative, and I can do these things. I have these abilities. And so in praying and thanking God for what he's doing and, and giftings and, and, and all these things, and, 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 I'm, and I'm thanking and I'm praying, and I remember a friend of mine said once, our abilities are often our biggest liabilities because those are the things we can do without God. And I felt like the Lord saying, you're capable in a lot of areas, but do you have the temperament you should have? You're capable in a lot of areas, but are you maturing? You're capable in a lot of areas, but is the fruit of the Spirit being made manifest in your life? Are you more loving and joyful and peaceful? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you faithful? Do you exhibit self-control? In short, are you becoming more like Jesus? Because there's a lot of people that can do a lot of things well. God doesn't, not that he doesn't care about that, but that's secondary. See, I would rather have somebody who's teachable than somebody who's capable all day long. Because no matter how talented, no matter what kind of abilities you have, if you're not teachable, God can't use you and I can't either. He wants people who say, here I am, God, use me. Not because I have these incredible gifts, but because I have a surrendered spirit and a surrendered heart. And those are the kind of people God changes the world with, not because of them, but despite them. Because of him. And so sometimes... Admittedly, in my life, the answer is no. I'm not becoming more like Jesus. I'm doing ministry better and better. I might look better and better on the outside, but sometimes I'm in a rut. You know, sometimes, especially for those of us in ministry, we can substitute our activity for intimacy with Jesus. We can be at church and we can do all kind of stuff and still be far from God. I see it all the time. And I'm, I'm not immune from it. The pastor's not immune from it. If anything, you can make the case that the enemy wants more to take us out. To scatter the sheep. To discourage believers. And so in my life, there is never a moment where I wake up and I don't need to desperately cling to Jesus Christ for that day. Because there's a world that wants to destroy me, that wants to destroy my family, my ministry, but God. But he's good. And he's not good because I'm exceptional. He's good because he's exceptional. 
So this morning, I want to I look at a, a couple sort of categories. You know, when we talk about excuses we come up with, I think we can say that most of them sort of fall into one of, one of these two sort of topics or banners above, right? One is unbelief. And I want to define unbelief as a lack of trust. Unbelief doesn't mean I don't believe Jesus is who he claims to be. We can believe the right things about God, but not really trust God. So unbelief or a lack of trust, and then busyness or a lack of priorities. That's what I want to look at. I want to look at those two excuses, and I think most of the excuses we make really are encompassed under those two. Because until Jesus comes back, he's given us work to do. And I've said before, if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, then the following part can't be optional. If you, just, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you're not following him, then you just show up on a Sunday in this particular place from 10.30 to, you know, whatever. But if you're called to be a follower, it means you follow. Imperfectly and messy, but you follow. You show up. You receive from the one who created you and who knows how you best should live, and you respond accordingly because you trust him, because you know that he knows what's best for you. Sometimes when I correct my kids or I try to tell them what's best, sometimes they don't know. You know, especially when they're little. When kids are little, they don't understand why they just can't play all day and eat, you know, fruity pebbles all day. They don't get that. And if you tell them, well, you can't do that, it's not good for you, well, why? You don't love me. You don't understand. That's what I want to do. But we know at that level that a good parent doesn't always let their kids what they want to do because a good parent knows what's best for them. And yet we tell God what we want to do all the time. And then he says, well, that's not what's best for you. And you're like, but I want to do it. I want to eat Fruity Pebbles and binge Netflix all day. And some of us, I know, we won't. that's right. God's saying, look, if you trust me, that means you believe that. What I have for you is better than what you have for you. See, it's not about legalism. It's about the realization that the greatest joy and blessing we have in this life is the ability to walk closely with Jesus. Everything else pales into comparison. So unbelief, not necessarily a lack of belief in God, but a lack of trust in him and his promises. Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now in Hebrew, the heart is, it's not just an organ, it's not just the center of your emotion, it's the center of your being. It's everything you are. Everything you do emanates from that. It's your will, it's your intellect, it's your emotion, it's all you are. So every fiber of your being, including your mind, including your your emotions, are so directed toward God that you trust in him fully with your life. Because it's easy to trust God when his agenda lines up with mine. When I look around and everything looks like I think it should look, it's like, yeah, God, we're right on plan. I trust you. But then what if things don't look the way you think they should look? What do you do then? Is he any less trustworthy? Or do you go, I didn't see this coming, but Lord, I trust you. I've preached before, some of us trust in outcomes, not in God, outcomes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, it's not about what you know. It's not about what you think. It's not about what you've read unless you've read it in the Bible. It's not about what Oprah told you. It's not about what you read in a magazine. It's not about what your neighbor told you. It's about what the word of God, what the spirit of God, the truth of God in your life. That's what it's about. 
And if you trust in him fully, you're going to know that. So there's really two options there. You can live trusting in God, or you can live leaning on your own understanding. I don't know about you, but when I did that, it was a disaster. There's a lot of people that can testify to that truth. In all your ways, acknowledge him, verse 6. And he will make your path straight. It's a promise. Not in most of your ways, not in some of them. But in all your ways, in everything you do, in every choice you make, acknowledge him. And he's going to make your path straight. It might not look like your idea of straight, but it's going to be straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Feel the Lord and shun evil. And then verse 8 says, this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. And we can overlook the truth there. See, the truth is, the medical experts would tell you, the most destructive thing to us physically is stress. It's the thing that causes us most, 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 most health trouble in our life is stress. And if you live your life and you have trust in the Lord, doesn't mean you're not human, doesn't mean you're not emotional, doesn't mean things don't affect you, but it means no matter what happens, you can still trust in the Lord. And that's going to give you a peace that's going to physically help you. And so this is a deeper truth than just, you know, it's not just hyperbole. When it says this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Because you know what happens when you're, when you're stressful, when you're anxious? Your bones break down. They become more brittle. Look it up. It's science. The truth of science. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So then, unbelief or not believing in Jesus is essentially this. It's turning away from Jesus in order to seek satisfaction in other things. Unbelief is turning away from Jesus in order to seek satisfaction in other things. And believing in Jesus is coming to him for all of our needs and all of our longings because we know in him alone we will be satisfied. I'm going to read you this. Belief is not mainly an agreement with facts in the head. It is mainly an appetite in the heart which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. Belief is not mainly an agreement with facts in the head. It is mainly an appetite in the heart which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. I remember the day intellectually I came to believe that God existed, that Jesus was who he said he was. I remember it. And you would think that shortly thereafter I surrendered and made him my Lord. I know I needed a savior, so it was easy. You're going to save me, save me. But a Lord, a king, I'm doing good. And now I can't save myself, but I can be my own king. It was well over a decade after I, believed God, after I believed in God, after I believed Jesus was who he said he was, till I surrendered my life to him. They say the longest journey in a man's life is from his head to his heart, right? In order to combat a lack of trust and unbelief, we can do a few things. First, we can pray. And one of the most honest prayers in the Bible is the man who wanted his son to be healed. And can you imagine the desperation as a parent? There's no greater desire 
than to come to God and pray for a child. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Probably one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible because there's that desperation, there's that raw honesty. You know, when it's not about what people see, but it's about just the cry of your heart. I believe, but my faith is shaky. I believe, but help my unbelief. Because my faith is so imperfect. We can remember back when God came through. Sometimes in the moment, it's hard to see his hand. And we look back and we see all along, even in the difficult times, especially in the difficult times, he was there. Take part in community groups. Share your testimony. Be encouraged by other people sharing their testimony. And read the word. If you want to know more about God, if you want to know more about his promises, if you want to develop trust in him, know about him. Know the word. Studies have shown again and again that the biggest problem facing the church is biblical illiteracy. They interview people again, not people who just claim to be you know, nominal Christians, people who say, I'm an evangelical born-again Christian, and they ask them basic questions, and half of them have no idea. They say, is this in the Bible? And say, yeah, that's in the Bible. No, it's not. Because we don't read. I mean, we have our devotions. We have our, maybe our podcasts, our TV shows. Those are supplementary. Those are good things. Those aren't bad. But you've got to read the Word. Because if not, you're left with what you think and what you feel. And what Oprah thinks and what Oprah feels. Poor Oprah, I'm always picking on her. Whoever, pick your, pick your crazy talk show host. It's not about what your neighbor thinks. It's not about what the magazines tell you. It's not about what culture tells you. It's about the truth of the word of God. Read the book. I have remarkable testimony because God is remarkable, not because I am, because he is, and because life brought me to a place where I surrendered to him, and people say, it's good, Pastor Brian, you know, I've heard your testimony, you surrendered to Jesus. Let me, let me, let me be very clear that I did not surrender to Jesus for a long time, years and years, decades, a decade and a half, And when I finally surrendered to God, there was nothing left. There was nothing to to congratulate me about. I had made such a mess, and I felt like God was going, you you done yet? I mean, what do you think? Want to do this again? A couple more years, you think? Just let me know. Because that was the pattern, year after year. And so when I finally surrendered to him, I'm like, yeah, this, I blew the whole thing up. I don't know what to do. It's irrevocably broken. There's, there's no hope. It's, it's ashes. There's nothing to rebuild. Yeah, I surrender. Look at me. There was nothing left to surrender. I had made such a mess in my life. I didn't even have a will to live. My will to live was because I didn't want, want to hurt the people who loved me anymore. That was the only reason why. That was the only will to live I had. And I was absolutely hopeless. And I encountered Jesus Christ. (laughs) He met me in that place. And he changed me forever. And I take no credit at all for that. But some of you, you know, you don't have to blow your life up. But you do have to get to the place where you give him control, where you surrender it all. Don't wait. Don't wait another minute. Because you can't do as good of a job as he does. I promise you that.
And you can't find satisfaction apart from him. I promise you that. And so now we're going to talk about something. Unless you're, if you're not as uncomfortable and convicted yet, now we're going to jump into busyness. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to offend everybody in the room by the end of this, this part. This is going to convict us. It's going to make us uncomfortable. There's a philosopher who said this, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. The feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. It is on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else, and we become the busiest people in the world. So we'll define busyness then as not having time for God, which comes from a preoccupation with self. It means our priorities are wrong. And if you don't make God a priority in your life, your kids will not. Here's a sobering statistic. Here's a sobering reality. Your kids are more likely to come to faith if you are an atheist and you have no faith at all than if you are simply a nominal Christian who plays lip service. Maybe you show up to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe you pop in from time to time because your kids, they'll listen to what you say, but they watch how you live. And statistics will show that they're more likely to come to faith when they have no faith in their life at all than when their examples don't put God first and they just, you know, just marginally pretend. In fact, we've lost a whole generation for that reason. Because my parents' generation, I mean, you can, you can read this, sociologists will say, there was sort of an inherited morality. So there was a sense of, there were still the values of the previous generation. And our, our kids don't, didn't inherit that. There's not even a concept, there's not even language for sin. We live in a world of preferences. There's not right and wrong, there's just what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And so we can say all day long, we can talk about the truth, we can talk about God being important, but if our kids don't see that lived out, if, if faith is just sort of an afterthought, it's nominal, church is something we come to when we have nothing better to do or when it's raining out, our kids are going to see that and they're going to go, yeah, my parents say they believe in God, but it wasn't really important to them. That ought to convict us. That ought to challenge us. God tells us we should be in fellowship with other believers. It's not optional. It's all throughout the New Testament. He tells us we should worship him. He tells us we should study his word. He tells us we should pray regularly. And here's the thing, right? Jesus wasn't the kind of teacher who came and told all, everybody, all right, this is what you should do, and then didn't do any of it. He lived it out. I remember talking to a Christian friend of mine once, and they said, does, you know, I don't know, I mean, praying, I don't know, should I pray? And I'm like, you know, he's like, you know, make the case, you know, theologically for why I should pray. I'm like, ready? Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. <laughs> You want to know why you should pray? Jesus prayed. He, he lived it out. He set the example. He knew that it was communion, that it was communication, that it was a reliance upon the Father. This is, this is what he did. This is how he lived. This isn't just for CFC or, or for me or, you know, or for the pastors. This is for all of us. 
And, and it's not something that God wants us to do so he'll love us more. It's something he gives us to do because he loves us. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us the ability to meet together as a church because he loves us. Not so he can say, if you show up to these things, I'm going to love you more. No, that's backwards. That's religion. See, we think God understands that we need to work 80 hours a week. I had a friend of mine, and I love him. God bless him. Good friend. And I ran into him a couple years ago. I said, how you doing? Oh, man, I am exhausted. I am working 80, 90 hours a week. You know, I just, I'm always working. I said, well, stop working so much. No, I can't. I can't. You know, I got, I mean, I got, you know, my mortgage, and I got, love the guy, good friend of mine, him and his wife together, probably making two, $300,000 a year, drove a Land Rover motorcycle, motorhome. She drove a fancy BMW, $800,000 house. All this stuff he didn't have time to enjoy. Nothing wrong with stuff. Nothing wrong with owning stuff. It's a problem when your stuff owns you. He was a slave. He didn't even realize it. Nice guy, not a bad guy. I can't. You know, I got to work. I got to, you know, I build this lifestyle. It's like, you're miserable, dude. <laughs> it's not working for you. I don't know what to tell you, but your calendar is up to you. And I'm not saying there aren't busy seasons of life, because we all have busy seasons of life. But if you had a busy decade, you're mismanaging your time. And here's the thing, and here's why I'm going to offend everybody in the room. Ready? And I tell you this, I tell you this not to be critical, but for the lesson. I've had these conversations with people. I've had conversations with single people. Say, you know, I'm going to serve more, but I'm in school now, and, you know, studies are tough. And, but once, you know, things settle down, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to serve more, and I'll get involved. Okay. Then time goes on, they get into a relationship. Well, you know, it's a new relationship, and, you know, but I'm going to, you know, once, you know, we kind of get settled, we figure it out, you know, things, then I'm going to, you know, they, okay. They get married. You know, we're newlyweds, and we're really trying to adjust to life together, and, but at some point, you know, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to get plugged in, and okay, and the baby comes. And that's like a good three-year excuse. Well, you know how I used to come to church with a baby and with kids? Okay. And then the 30s, 40s come. You know, I'm a manager now. Life's so busy at work. I just don't, you know. But as soon as things slow down, you know, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to plug in. Okay. Then I get older. Retire. Well, you know, I mean, we're retired now, so we do a lot of traveling. And, you know, we have people over. We're away a lot. Okay. So what's my point? My point is there will always be a busy thing to do. There will always be, and if you keep putting it off, you will never get around to it. You'll always find a reason why you can't do it. But you know the reality is every one of us in this room make time for the things that are important to us. We do. And so I'm not telling you that to make you feel bad. And I don't even, I don't even, people, when I talk to them, I can tell they're not lying. They're not, they're not making excuses. They sincerely believe that at some point things are going to settle down and they'll be able to plug in. But they're waiting for that time and it's never going to come. And they're going to get to the end of their lives and be like, man, God gave me these gifts, these resources, these opportunities, and I missed out. Because here's what scripture promises. God's going to build this church. He's going to build it. You get to choose just whether you participate or not. 
And that doesn't mean perfectly. I'm not saying that we, again, that we don't have busy seasons. But I'm saying that oftentimes we need to be shaken out of our slumber, out of our lukewarm pursuit of our own comfort above all else. I love, I used to preach to the Teen Challenge guys all the time, are you comfortable or are you growing? Because if you're growing, you're not comfortable, and if you're comfortable, you're not growing. So choose. Because being a Christian means becoming more like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but because I'm not a lot like Jesus, that whole process is pretty uncomfortable to me. But I'm going to embrace it because I want to grow. If you choose comfort, you'll be comfortable. You'll be comfortable for a season and you will be unsatisfied and unfulfilled your entire life. So now my main text, right? The Good Samaritan, familiar to a lot of us, Luke 10. It says, on one occasion, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we know he was an expert. We know he had the head knowledge. And we know his motive wasn't sincere, but he was trying to test Jesus. And so he opens by asking sort of like, like the question that he knows the answer to, right? And it sounds, it's pseudo-spiritual. It sounds religious. It sounds like he's, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because that's what's happening here. That's the context. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And so he answered 27. The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is in Deuteronomy. This lawyer, he had been, he had been repeating that his whole life. It was a religious exercise. Some of us, we know the prayers, right? This was just the prayer he knew. He asked the question he knew the answer to. So he went up to Jesus with a motive to test him, asking a question. He knew Jesus was going to ask him. He answered it and probably stood there with all kind of pride. See, I know. And so Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's easy to kind of overlook that. Jesus doesn't say, you've answered correctly because of your knowledge you will live. He said, you've answered correctly, but you've got to do it. It's got to be active and real, and you'll have life. After, season, after Jesus essentially talks about the place God should have in our lives, and after the lawyer rightfully recites a religious sort of a, you know, a, a tagline, now he's looking for a way out. He's making excuses. So verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he wanted, to, he wanted to make an excuse. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you from any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked, and the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus said, go and do likewise. There's a lot there in that scripture. What moved the Samaritan was pity. The Samaritan had every excuse because Samaritans in that world, there was such prejudice, they were so hated. So the Samaritan could have said, this guy, I'm not going to take care of him. He would probably kill me if he had the chance. He hates me. True. That would have been a good reason not to help somebody. These other two people, they didn't help him. I'm not going to help him. See, the priest had the right vocation. The Levite had the right background. He was from the right class. But neither one of them did what they ought to do. They knew the answers. But what matters is what they did or didn't do with the opportunity that was in front of them. Were they too busy? Were they heading somewhere else? Did they have no compassion? Either way, their priorities were wrong. And so are we walking past the people who need us the most when we don't show up? What is our excuse for not being used? Well, you know, someone else will do it. I'm not that good at it. That person doesn't really like me. See, too often we're building a life of success instead of significance. We're building our kingdom instead of his. Do not love the world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Ask the worship team to come up. Chase Jesus. Give your life to him. Nothing else will satisfy. Everything else will be a dead end. Pursue Jesus. God pursues you. The Bible says he's a jealous God. He doesn't want to be second or third. He doesn't want to be second or third because whatever is first is what you're worshiping. And if it's not Jesus, it'll destroy you. Whether it does it immediately or whether it does it over time, it'll destroy you. Ephesians 5, verse 14. Let's stand. It says, Awake, sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The only cure for a preoccupation with self is a preoccupation with Jesus. He tells us for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as we close, as the worship team sings, these altars are open. 
I don't care what your neighbor's doing. It's not about what other people, it's about you. What God's saying to you, what God's doing in your life. You know, I read and I shared last week that somewhere along the line, every single person in your life, you're going to have one last conversation with. You're going to speak to every single person in your life for the very last time, and you don't know when that is. Life is precious. Don't wait to tomorrow. Don't say, you know, Pastor Brian, that message convicted me, and, you know, next week or tomorrow, today. Do your business with God today.